the digital transition. Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 23. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm chatting with May Winfield from Bureau Hapold about the legal issues in BIM. Before I talk to May, I need to talk to you a little bit about our exclusive sponsor, NBS. So NBS is a global leading technology platform that combines the best content and connectivity for anyone involved in the design, supply, construction in the built environment. Now they do this through their NBS Chorus platform and it's revolutionising construction specifications with cloud-based collaboration. It allows you to integrate seamlessly with your building model, allowing you to increase productivity and reduce risk. Now to learn more about NBS and NBS Chorus, please head over to their website, www.thenbs.com. .com.au. So let's get started. Firstly, May, for those that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a senior construction lawyer. I've been a lawyer for about 16, 17 years. Uh, I do have some connection with Australia. My mum's from Adelaide, uh, but I've worked in uh, the construction, construction insurance industry, both in a law firm in London and then in international contractors and consultants currently working at Berhappold Engineering. Uh, I've been involved in BIM since 2011, which is the year the UK government mandated the use of level two BIM when the UK government gave five years to uh, implement it. I got involved with BIM because I'm a real techie at heart and it enabled me to combine my day job with what I found interesting. I remember attending the first BIM, the big first big BIM conference in London, BIM Live Show in 2011. And whenever I met people, they were like, why are you here? It's got nothing to do with law. And that went on for years, to be honest. Uh, but I, um, from the start, I was researching the sort of legal contractual issues of BIM. I've written, co-written various papers, documents, standard form documents. But uh, I've seen the shift, I think, in the interest in taking the legal side seriously uh, because since then I've been invited to speak at events worldwide. The last ones just before lockdown were in Germany, Spain and South Africa. And these are just general BIM conferences where they say, actually, we do need someone talking about the legal side, which is gratifying. It's, it's important to see that people are finally taking you serious in the UK. You know, here in Australia, I have to say there's only been a couple of occasions in the events that I've been part of that I have actually had, we have had one or two presentations from lawyers and at the time I felt that their their awareness of, of, of BIM was a little bit lacking. But then at the same time we don't see many construction lawyers fronting up to events. So... I'm hoping, and I guess the main reason for actually having this discussion and, and, and podcast is so that we can hopefully raise the awareness of the importance of the legal standpoint uh, in regards to the use of BIM and digital engineering and, and, and digital contracts and, 
and also, the, you know, the process of ISO 19650. But before we delve into all of that, you know, another thing that's really important having you on the show is to understand a little bit more about yourself. So we've, you've talked about yourself. But can you just also share with the listeners a little bit about what your company, Bureau Hapold, actually does? So Bureau Hapold is a international practice of engineers, consultants, advisors. We um, do a broad range of things within the construction industry. Uh, I've been there um not that long, about a year and a half. But what attracted me to Berhapold was that they have a real passion for what they do and are really forward thinking. We're doing lots of really exciting technologically advanced projects and research. All the stuff we do is BIM enabled, whether or not the client asks for it. And there's a real, I think what enables that is that the guys have a real integrated collaborative thinking. Uh, because it doesn't work without that. Um, you need an interconnected community with it internally. Uh, one of the projects we did do uh, is the Jewel Changi Airport, which is the, the big rain vortex, the indoor waterfall, and the Singapore Airport. Uh, so it's that sort of thing, quite um, unusual projects, but also just your normal day-to-day stuff as well. So most people in Australia that travel overseas and, and all the conferences I've had to attend overseas, you, you typically transit through Singapore. So it's a, it's a quite a, uh, an exciting project I have seen in real life. So it's a, it's a nice um, project, but obviously wouldn't have been able to be achieved, obviously probably successfully without the use of, of BIM and, and all the coordination and stuff. I guess moving on to the context of, I guess, why I wanted to have a talk to you. You know, here in Australia, haven't met any lawyers that actually have a strong understanding about BIM and its implications on consulting and construction contracts. So, you know, first of all, I have to actually say in, 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 in many words, I'm very grateful for your time today, you know, because from my perspective, I think that and, and the, the work that, that you've done uh, that we'll have a talk about today, your level of expertise and knowledge in regards to this topic and subjects really need to be absorbed by the legal profession uh, here in Australia. So they can actually provide some real advice or more uh, educated advice or, you know, knowledge in and around what they actually have to do because they're advising asset owners in regards to contracts that they should use for their consultants and construction. So, you know, as we're moving forward, they need to be more aware and the only, the only people having those conversations are the lawyers. The first step that some of these lawyers may choose to go down is go, all right, let's, let's grab these new ISO standards and in particular ISO 19650.2 because it talks about the actual process and that's normally their first stop. One of the things I think they should do before they do that is actually, you know, take a step back and actually read uh, the Winfield Rock Report, which you're a co-author of, and, you know, I think that's an impressive feat in itself. That was in 2018, I believe. That's right. Yeah, so it was in 2018. That's a couple of years ago, so hopefully we can start to see Australia move. You know, that's taken seven years from your original BIM conference to actually writing a report for lawyers and in and around contracts. Now, can you, I guess it's a double, a double-edged question, can you explain the purpose of the report and, you know, for someone that has read through it, I think it's really important to understand the backstory in regards to the amount of uh, the extensive research that you've done to actually curate it. 
So it's um, co-written with Sarah Rock of Gowling WLG, which is a law firm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, we we started researching it in mid-2017 and we finished writing it, I think, late 2017, early 2018. And it came about because we both did BIM uh, in our sort of legal day-to-day work. And what we noticed was the legal community didn't seem to have a grasp of BIM uh, and we're seeing things like do some BIM or nothing actually in the documents, but then the client would say, but where's all your all the BIM stuff? <laughs> but equally, the industry had this perception that the lawyers didn't understand BIM. And we thought, is this just our experience or is this actually true? And if it is, it's a problem. What should we do about it? So we... Um, we did a survey uh, as well as we interviewed, I think, 44 people who were from both law firms, in-house practices, but also clients, consultants, contractors, trying to get a feel for what people experience about contract documents have been, about the standards at the time. Uh, this was before the ISO, so it's the past 1192 suite of standards. Uh, also, where should it go next? And we asked each of the interviewees the same set of questions. And one of the interesting ones was we asked them, what is BIM? But what is level two BIM? And every single person gave a different answer. That's and this caused quite, yeah, exactly. And it, this caused quite a big stir when it got released because I think people just assumed, despite us having an opinion to the contrary, that obviously everyone knows what level two is, what everyone knows what BIM is. So you don't have to explain it in the documents. But suddenly it was 44 respected people who are involved in BIM or involved in big projects say everything from, I think one said, well, it is past 1192, it's complying with the standards, all the way to, oh, it's a holistic method of construction. Now, these two things are both right, but they bear no resemblance to each other. Uh, And it's since its publication, it's been downloaded worldwide, including in Australia. um, And it's the people I've spoken to both in the UK and in other places, it's been really helpful to actually have something that they can put in front of their bosses, their legal counsel, and say, this is why you should take it seriously. Because we also, we talk to claims consultants who are doing disputes in the Middle East and worldwide. And people realize, okay, there's no court cases But problems are happening just behind closed doors because the documents just aren't clear. So you get to the end of the project and you realize your understanding of what you were meant to deliver is wildly different from what the client thought. And it's no one's fault in a way that, but it's just, it's not clear. And you're wasting so much time and money and relationships that way. Uh, So we, as a result, we, made some recommendations. We had, um, we formed BIM for Legal, uh, a neutral forum for the legal community to upskill. But we also had a legal questions checklist. And this is very contract neutral, 
I think it could be used any, wherever you are in the world. And it's aimed for lawyers who don't know what BIM is or think, okay, I know it's something to do with 3D models and just get them to ask these series of questions from the clients and say, okay, now I have enough information to advise you. Because it's not that lawyers don't know construction law, but they don't know what they don't know. So they, yep. they don't realize, okay, if you put a model together, this, these are the things it contains. Therefore, I need to put these sorts of things into documents. I just had to bring it up because I, in my head, it was 160 people that did your online survey and I, and I just had to double check. It was 158. So it's an extensive amount of information and, and it demonstrates, I guess, the reason why we tried to do BIM in the first place because we're trying to remove ambiguity and we're trying to make the communication of information clearer. Yet people that are leading in in industry, you know, the 44 people that you interviewed, all saw what that meant contractually, completely, you know, not completely different, but slightly different, which then doesn't actually solve any problems. Exactly. I mean, BIM is supposed to and does have so many benefits, saves time, money, increased quality, etc. But if you all think you're doing something different, you're going to take away those benefits from just arguing about it. Um, and it's all it's all avoidable that that aspect of it at least. It certainly is if it's actually written quite clearly as to what people need and want. I don't want to go too crazy, and I might have to ask the question a bit later, and I'll have to remember it. So that's the first report. Have you written any reports that are publicly available to read? You know, I I, I haven't found them over here in Australia yet, but have you written any other reports since that report, the Winfield Rock report that you wrote in 2018? Since then, obviously, there's the ISO 19650 has come out, which um, has shifted, I would say, things somewhat and increased clarities. Uh, I was involved in the the UK BIM Alliance and a couple of other organisations got together to put together some guidance on the ISO. Uh, and which is in two parts from the Alliance's website. And in the first part, it has an appendix, which I uh, led drafting of with two other lawyers. And that explains, that kind of gives an action list or checklist for lawyers of this section of the ISO 19650 part two, this is the legal impact. These are things you should think about. And whilst it's obviously we are all UK lawyers, I think it's a good checklist anyway and reference point for even Australian lawyers because the, the issues are the same. It's just how you solve them is probably different. Earlier this year, we then uh, wrote and released an information protocol because the ISO envisages that all the legal bits will be in a separate protocol schedule for the contract, but there isn't actually one. The only one, the only standard from protocol predates ISO. Uh, and But we used that and amended it and took took about us about a year actually uh, to completely finish it. And that included going to particular specialists in the field saying, read this, does it make any sense to you from a technical perspective? And so the aim of that schedule is that you can just attach it to your contract. It is ISO compliant and you, everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing. Again, it'd be, it's a UK document, but hopefully Australian lawyers could take that, look through it and amend the bits where the legal position is different in Australia. But it, 
because it's ISO compliant, it, it should hopefully help. Particularly, there's one expression in the ISO 1960 part two, which is the standard in the ISO, uh, the overall standard is you will deliver to ISO 19650. Now, that doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, and I've said to the gentleman who wrote part two, my legal opinion was that's as clear as mud. <laughs> and I've, I've said this in, the, in front of him a number of occasions. Uh, but we've, we've sort of solved that from a legal perspective because from a technical perspective, it makes sense. But from a legal contractual perspective, again, it goes back to what you think it means, what I think it means, completely different. And in the protocol, we've provided the definition for that, kind of trying to plug the gaps into different things. I'm also currently researching and writing a legal analysis, actually, of ISO 1950 Part 2 with, with the author, uh, aimed at the international community, so more um, neutral rather than a guidance as such, a kind of like the Winfield Rock Report analysed the legal contractual position of UK BIM as of 2017-2018. It's kind of doing the same but internationally for the ISO. Um, so, so sort of watch that space for that. No, it's important to note. So the only thing that's different from the, with the Australian to the UK version is there is a, the annex that's incorporated into the UK standard which covers off on naming conventions of documents. So, and a few other things from memory, but um, I've just pulled up your your guidance, which was in in part one, I believe. Yes, it's annex annex number C, legal and contractual guidance note. The ISO is very consistent, that, that, as you did state, and this is the biggest problem we do face here in Australia. You know, when when I look over um, terms of reference documents or requests for tender documents and and you look through them, there is uh, clients that just have delivered the project in accordance with ISO 19650.1 and .2. And, you know, the challenges are is that they uh, they haven't even um, advised which, you know, they have, you know, it doesn't solve it even if they just say which parts are relevant. You know, as you've talked about, it's important that, that they need to be very clear as to what that is in regards to that. So... It, it is quite challenging here in Australia and, you know, obviously you've experienced it in the UK. So it's not just a, a uh, tick and flick exercise uh, for for the uh, the lawyers preparing contracts. No, um, I think the, the thing is that we all, over the years, what I've noticed is everyone's encountering the same problems. Everyone sees documents that say, do BIM, follow the standards, uh, provide me with some in models but for example with the ISO 19650 a lot of it's written with you will consider or you shall do x but it's written obviously to apply for lots of different types of projects worldwide the client doesn't actually want you to do every single thing no. in the ISO it's going to be a waste of time and money and it's actually sitting down and working that out but it is the easier option obviously just to say just follow the standards you should know how to do that but it's not actually in the client's interest because they're going to have to pay more and probably have a disagreement at the end as to whether it looks 
like what what they had envisioned. No, well, it's hard. It is really hard. And I guess this is where asset owners investing further up the line in their organisational information requirements would be better in the sense that many of them don't provide those documents or create those documents. But what it at least highlights is the why, you know, why the, the, why the information is actually required, which then actually might guide the supply chain a little bit better in the sense that if that, inf- if that information is actually driven by a why, why this information is important, it then at least provides a little bit more clarity. It doesn't answer it all completely uh, from a legal standpoint, but at least it gives a little bit more context to it rather than just actually the standard. I'm slightly off track, but I thought I'm going to pull it back only because I, I do want to kind of make sure that we do cover off on all the information um, that you touched upon um, with regards to the Winfield Rock Report. Now, the other outcome that you um, delivered from your report was the formation of your BIM for Legal Community Group. First of all, I think, why was it important to form this group? Uh, and then secondly, have you actually had much traction since its inception? BIM for Legal, we formed because we saw the gap in knowledge. One of the things that a lot of lawyers told us was that where do we find out more? And there aren't that many resources. We don't need to know how to use Revit. We need to know what are the issues if they're using different types of software. It's it's a different question. And also, obviously, lawyers from different law firms or different companies may find it difficult to unless they knew each other, to just pick up the phone and say, so what's your experience of the documentation? Of forming a neutral forum where everyone can come together. We have leading speakers come and talk about, this is my experience, here's some knowledge, here's how you can make your documents better, here are the um, things that you should cover in your contract, so they can then take that away and share that knowledge internally. And what we've found is that over the years from its formation, at the beginning, it was pretty much mostly the construction industry attending events and expressing interest, emailing us. But more and more, we've seen lawyers attending the events. So in uh, 100 people before it would be 10%, now it's about 50-50, which is great. And it shows they've actually realize, okay, this is something we've, I've received requests of, can you actually just come in and talk to some of the teams in, in a law firm in a sort of a simplistic, what do you actually need to know and where can you find out more information? So I'd say from, from that perspective, it's been a success in what it was meant to do, which is just get people interested Mm -hmm. and start talking to each other when we also one of the benefits is when we have events and have the industry talk to lawyers and say this is my experience these are the things that do go wrong for us in real life the lawyers can then bear that in mind when they're preparing documents they're negotiating contracts and so on and it's just I think it some of the problems sometimes is it's so BIM is quite a separate thing from your typical construction law. I, I would say having done it for some years, it's not something you can just pick up. And the more you know 
from people who who know what they're talking about, the better. It's also all the terminology. There's this running joke in the UK BIM community that you could do a whole paragraph of acronyms and BIM terms and only the BIM community would understand what you meant, <laughs> but it would make complete sense. And it's, it's that sort of thing. So, so we're trying to reach out to them. That's that's a sad thing about it in terms of it's it's like talking another language and the, the key for any good construction or any good contract, let's take it away from construction contracts, is the fact that it's written in plain English and, and BIM kind of brings it to another level where it, it changes, you know, the, the terminology is, is that foreign to a lot of people. It just makes it so much more challenging. I wonder if we could ever change the terminology so that it actually made it simpler but then I see a lot of people well, doing that already um, <laughs> and it makes it worse because yeah, it's more well, confusing. Um, that, that's the trouble. It's if you have, do you have a whole sentence instead of one word? The ISO actually doesn't mention the word BIM, except I think someone told me it's like 14 places in whole standards. So it's trying to move away from that because there's this whole misunderstanding what BIM means. But it still introduces new terms like level of information need, which has confused so many people Uh, but it makes once you understand what it means like okay that's quite quite a smart expression but it is a new term that you have to get your head around no well it it was quite fun i think we had uh marcia uh, Mm. she was presenting at our brisbane event from the uk middle of last year and she was talking about ISO 19650 and, and the introduction of the word loin, which, you know, as an acronym is is not really the most exciting thing um, when it comes no, to talking there's a real, to crazy people. Um, there's a real push not to not to um, shorten it. <laughs> um, I have to, Marcia was, I remember talking to Marcia about that. So like, you do not call it loin. You have to call it level of information needs. Like, okay. No, but <laughs> but people problem, will do this. Of course, everything's <laughs> going to be acronymed in this. But one of the things I think would be really interesting now, look, you talked about the need for uh, construction lawyers to get together in the UK. The challenge we have here in Australia is that, you know, for these construction lawyers that are listening to this podcast right now, it would be very hard for them to potentially begin that journey alone. I guess we'll start with the first thought. When you began your journey, and now it's, you know, nine years ago, how about, uh, how, how did you go about learning about BIM and the relevant standards? Was it a, you know, one of the things that I find throughout my career is that because it's all kind of self-paced learning, because things were occurring as you're learning, you know, and a lot of the information didn't exist when you started your journey. It was a, it's, you know, it's been a long, long, you know, you've take, you take, it takes all this time to learn it. But for all the information that's readily available today, what are your thoughts on how a construction lawyer could begin their journey from, you know, for the lawyers here in Australia? I think it's probably easier now than when I started, there wasn't really much around. Uh, so I went to loads of events and I, that's one thing I would say, don't be embarrassed about just showing up at BIM events, asking the questions. Um, where I always ask, so how you've just talked about this technical thing, how does that, how do you put that into documentation? How do you put that in the contract? And I know a lot of the BIM community here, and I'm sure they always roll their eyes. Like, oh, here May goes asking about the contract again. But how else do you know? Uh, ask your clients or, or you know, if you're in-house, ask your colleagues, tell me 
over the course of the next 15 minutes, tell me about your BIM experience, not how you program and how you create models, but your day-to-day process. And that's probably the best way. I had people showing me how they created models, how they click things, what were the big issues, what were their real horror stories. Um, The BIM Plus website uh, is really, really good. That puts up various case studies, but also articles from both lawyers, non-lawyers, about just real life, this is what BIM is, this, this is the journey everyone's been on. The UK BIM framework website is good for the standards uh, and the guidance is on there, the information protocols on there. Uh, and I would suggest, I mean, from a specific legal documentation perspective as well, I've written quite a lot of articles over the last nine years um, and those are all on my LinkedIn page. If and uh, If people ever have questions, always happy for people to drop me a line, ask me something. There's no such thing as a stupid question. I think that's often people are really hesitant to say, well, I should know this. Mm. So I'm just going to carry on as if I did. And it is just a matter of finding out the information wherever you can be coming more um, comfortable with, with the topic. But starting, certainly starting from the beginning, there's a on the Society of Construction Law website, I did a 2014 paper on legal obstacles of BIM and a contractual framework. And whilst that's 2014 is some years ago now, it's actually a good starting point on understanding where the legal contractual side sits. Because it hasn't, in terms of legal risk, it hasn't really changed apart from ISO specific issues. But your, your big ticket items like copyright, risk allocation are all the same. Your BIM for legal community, it's it's a UK community. The question is, is could it become an international community? It, it certainly could. Um, if, if anyone listening would like to open a branch in Australia, more than, more than welcome. I think it has to. Uh, it, it, the knowledge and increased skill about legal BIM has to just spread out worldwide. Otherwise, it's just a ticking time bomb. Someone someday is going to take each other to court because the issues will be problematic enough. It's better to avoid that than be the first one. One of my bosses once years ago said to me, someone's one day is going to have a problem as long as it's not us. And it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, well, it's it's hard, isn't it? And you know, there's there's lots of you know interesting, challenging law issues that we face in Australia, more and around workplace health and safety, and the challenges of the the legal requirements around that, and people not wanting to be the first case, so then it actually sets precedent law, and that's a, the same sort of thing, I guess, you've been talking about over in the, you know, with the UK, a lot of these little challenges that are being experienced due to contracts not being written appropriately or ambiguously uh, is that everyone's kind of settling it behind closed doors and there's not any case law behind this yet to actually kind of drive precedence, which is, you know, you don't want to be the first, but in some ways you don't want to, you know, you want to see what problems are out there, but then you don't get to see it unless it becomes a case you know, and it gets reported on, unfortunately. 
to learn off. Exactly. And, um, and one great thing about the, the BIM community in the UK is quite close, I'd say, and very friendly. And everyone does exchange information. So I've been in multiple big rooms and everyone's from a competing company, but people are quite helpful in trying to discuss lessons learned how can we just all not make the same mistake or what should we put in the BEP or the EIR? I'm involved in a 4D construction group and at the moment we're writing a big report about what should be in the EIR, what should be in different documentation, those sorts of things to share widely so that at least everyone has a starting point yeah. uh, and then can talk about how then we move to the next step. Yeah, now I think you are on a podcast a month or so ago actually in regards to that, one of a guest on that podcast yeah. or is that a, a regular appearance? And that's So that's the, I'm a core member of the 4D construction group and we decided in our non-existent free time to <laughs> start a podcast. So we're, we're trying to cover all the big topics, so health and safety and disputes, uh, what is 4D, we started out and how do you implement it? And and just we've been gratified actually by how interested people have been um, all over the world because 4D obviously is the next step of making 3D models even more useful than, than they are already. No, it certainly is and in most circumstances in construction projects that I've been dealing with here in Australia throughout my career as an architect, it's normally the program, we don't get too tied up in that in terms of being a superintendent of contracts. It's only when disputes kick in where critical time paths are challenged potentially. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to be something that I guess moving forward just provides a little bit more uh, evidence, I guess you could say, to enable conversations to occur in around program issues and, and, and delay. But I want to be contentious and I have to be contentious and and I don't know how well you're aware of my existence, May, uh, from over in the UK in terms of being contentious when it comes to, um, you know, having interviews or, or the like with some, with some things. But I think that Obviously, construction contracts in the UK and Australia, you know, are going to be slightly different. So, you know, you'll have, we'll have a, you know, but they're, you know, they're slightly different, but they're they're going to be fundamentally the same. So, I think you'll probably, I think the thinking I have, and your knowledge as a as a construction law expert will be able to kind of, you know, have a nice debate about it. Now, I personally believe that construction contracts actually don't really need to be changed that much to accommodate BIM. Now, why I say that is because all that we are changing is the deliverables that are required at the end of the project. And I believe that those deliverables need to actually be covered in more detail. So... You've, you've touched on it already in, in many ways regarding uh, the support and the information you've got with regards to covering some bases with regards to ISO 19650 with regards to the um, the extra information you've got in the, the guidance document. 
And you've actually done a really good presentation I saw for 3D Repo, which is actually online on YouTube, where you talk about um, contractual terminology between the ISO standard and construction contracts in the UK and conflicts. Am I simplifying this too much? (laughs) But, you know, am I simplifying it too much? But say, for example, we have a client that has clearly defined asset information requirements and exchange information requirements for their purposes and the other client or appointing party documents are well documented and and non-conflicting. So non-conflicting is obviously the first important word. If they are clear and non-conflicting and and form part of the the contract, is that enough? I would agree that the contracts don't need to be wholesale rewritten to do BIM. It's BIM, but have a the important thing to realize, um, obviously, is that BIM is a process, not a software. And so when you're doing BIM in, in the true sense of the word, it's not just a matter of delivering some 3D models at the end. During the process, you'll be exchanging information with the other project team members. You'll also have to be delivering certain things at different stages, Uh what you do with the information afterwards, who owns it. So, I mean, some of the things often that should be covered in a BIM supportive contract is sort of the additional bits, whether you put in a separate schedule in the contract itself, are things like making sure the copyright clause covers the BIM models, but also the data and objects in the models. So you may find a copyright clause which says your client gets a license to use your materials. But does the materials cover all your electronic data, all your Kobe data sheets, if that's what you're using, or anything? Who owns the information that's produced from the models? So if you can pull out cost data, FM data from the models, who owns that? And what rights does the client have to use it? Now, if you don't say anything, it'll go back to, well, I thought I could use it for this or I thought you couldn't. Equally, the things I think you'd probably end up having arguments about which need plugging is who who's responsible for what, when and how. So, for example, what happens if information gets corrupted? when you're uploading it to your CD or you're exchanging it and no one notices for a couple of months and then you have to do rework. Who, where does that sit? Uh, what format do your models have to be in? What sort of software are you using? Because there's real um, version controls, obviously, with some software. If you have an old version and the other person has a new version, you may not, one of you may not be able to open the model and, uh, and then, okay, that's you lose one day trying to sort that out, which can be a very long time. There's interoperability issues. If you're using different types of software, sometimes things can move around a bit. You lose. I always, um, when I explain it to lawyers, I always say, well, it's like using, uh, writing something on a Mac at home and going to, Uh, work and opening it up on your PC. And if you're using different programs, you may lose some formatting on your document, but there's no big flashing red lights that say it looks different. It just does. And again, I've seen various occasions where people just haven't noticed or they've picked it up by manual checking or they've had 
different objects within the model are wrongly named by accident. No one's noticed a clash until they get to site. Um, storage and security of the information. Particularly, you may be comfortable, obviously, with how your information is stored within your company, but you're giving a lot of data to the project team in a way that you don't, when you're providing 2D drawings, it is much more data rich. Are you comfortable with how it's being stored, how they're checking their information before they give it to you so you don't have to do that all over again? And then going back to that whole terminology and acronyms, if you don't talk about in the documents, an apple means an apple. If you're, particularly if you're coming from different countries with different uh, languages, some people may think the apple means a pear. Um, it's like the difference in um, the States and say the UK with LOD. It's, there's, there's, fundamental differences in how people, what people mean when they refer to certain um, terminology. And it's, it's that, I think, which often needs to be in the documentation. It's, it's a process, but what, what do you actually want? You want, okay, you want a 3D model. What do you actually want in it? Uh, what do you want to use it for to enable, to ensure that if you can't use it for that, who, whose fault is that? Whereas if you just say, I want, I want some 3D models of my building, that could mean anything, which is kind of one of the issues I think I know there's various disputes um, on sort of arbitrations, things like that over the world, which is, I want some models. And you get some models like, yes, but I wanted the models which were designed, not, I didn't want you to create models after the event and then that that apparently happens quite a lot as well so no but it, from my perspective i guess what that means is is that from a lawyer's perspective you need to not only be detailed in in because the volume of information that's being provided is substantially greater then there needs to be greater uh, explanation of all of those things that you talked about in regards to the the purposes of use. So, for example, if it has been transferred to you and the model was only designed to be used for certain BIM usages and then the client wants to use it for something else, then the the author of that model then can't be held accountable for that, that use that, that they weren't expecting it to be used for, for example. Now, one of the common things that I see here in Australia, and it, and it might, I'm hoping, I'm praying that it is something that only happens here in Australia and the UK have matured past this so you can kind of give some timely advice in regards to it, is that even at a high level, you know, government agency level, we're seeing still is, you know, I'll have BIM thanks or plain and simple deliver the project in accordance with ISO 19650. <laughs> You know, you might have probably just covered it in a, in its entirety just then, um, but you've kind of talked about it a few times, you know, potentially through our discussion as well in regards to ambiguity. But what happens if client, you know, from a client's perspective, what risk are they opening themselves up to 
if they ask for, I'll just have BIM or the project needs to be delivered in regards to ISO 19650? So I'd love to say that the UK has moved past that, but um, unfortunately no. not. Uh, I, over over a lot of the years, you still see uh, some tenders. It's less. I'd say five, six years ago, the vast majority was do level two BIM, full stop. And it may have a another half a page. Whereas now you probably more often see detailed EIRs, possibly um, a bet if you're further down the line. But you still see tenders which say do some BIM. Or level two. Uh, or it says, yeah. Or it says you will comply with the BIM protocol. But the BIM protocol is the contract document, not a standard, and say, well, you have to attach it. And then you have that debate of, no, I don't. It's a standard. And that comes from, obviously, the lack of understanding. Um, I, I think we are getting there in terms of moving past that. And maybe clients are much more, um, they're willing to listen and they're aware that possibly they do need maybe to put more in. But that's then dependent on who is advising them uh, whether it's a mature client. When it comes to delivering the project in accordance with ISO 19650, I think, as we spoke about earlier, one of the two problems with that is one, the ISO is very broadly written. So you can't, well, you can deliver it in accordance with the ISO, but probably not 100%. Within the first few months, there'll probably be a technical breach in terms of you haven't completely complied with it. But the, also the ISO part two has that expression in it. So you could have clients say, well, it says deliver in accordance with the ISO. Why, what's the problem? But unless you're specific in what you want, uh, what at the end of the day, what the deliverables, what's the data you want, the chances of you getting exactly what you have in mind is probably pretty low unless you have continuous discussions, which obviously should, but unless you oblige people to update you, give you the specific thing that you are looking for, all that's going to happen is that you'll get information you can't use at the end uh, or you will ha find that it's taking longer. Now, I've heard of a number of examples um, across Europe, across Asia, where the information and the models that the client receives at the end and they hand it to the FM contractor and say, okay, now maintain the property using these models. And the FM contractor says, I can't. It's, in, it's got the wrong information in, doesn't have, has too much in. Uh, I can't, it's, it's just in the wrong format because they weren't brought in and to us. So what do you actually need? And so then they have the, they face the prospect of either redoing models from scratch or from the information they have, or just doing it the old school way without them. Neither of these things make sense. Uh, but those, I think, are the real challenges and risks. But that's not, you could argue that's not a BIM-specific problem. If you just say to someone, build me a two-story building and don't give them any other information, you'll get a two-story building, but you may not find it very useful. 
and I think people get caught up in the fact BIM is this new techie shiny thing rather than just going back to basics and saying, well, if you don't tell people what you want, they won't know what you want. Yeah. It, it's it's very common here that a lot of people use our national specification system as uh, as architects. That's it's written very generically to a to a to a standard, and being that ambiguous, the deliverable of uh, maintenance manuals that get delivered by the contractor at the end is always different because it's that open to interpretation that the, the variety of information you get is so diverse, hence why it's really important for clients to, you know, embrace the opportunity to put more detail into how they actually want their information delivered for their virtual asset as much as much effort as they put into the brief for their, what they want as their, their physical two-storey building that you talk about. Getting close to the end of our chat today, but there's, there's two things I guess I wanted to kind of cover off on now. From your experiences... And, you know, the challenge is without case law, it's kind of hard. But from your experience and the conversations that you've had with your colleagues in the UK, what are the common causes of problems and disagreements that are happening in and around BIM contractually? So um, from what I've um, been told by various colleagues across the world, um, Middle East, um, Europe, UK, the things that cause most issues are firstly copyright where it's just not clear who owns models who owns the different bits in models or where you're assigning copyright in the models to your client but you only have licenses for the objects because you get them from manufacturers so you you're kind of giving something you don't have and then it's about uh the next one is where models are delivered part of the deliverables but possibly the uh, consultant subconsultant uh, has not been uh, designing to with the model and progressing it over time and I've heard a number of occasions where it's where's where's model where at the end of the project and hold on I, I just have to make it oh, like, no. that's not quite that what's well, not quite wasn't quite the plan and then general who's responsible for doing the different bits of the BIM process. So where the parties haven't made possibly a detailed bet, haven't talked about it, the EIRs are very vague. Everyone knows that they have to possibly to do some BIM models, but what sort of information needs to be dropped into it? Uh, how often it needs to be updated? Can I rely on the models if I'm the architect? I get the models from the engineer. What what can I do with it? Some consultants are wondering whether they should put, say, disclaimers. Okay, the rest of the project team shouldn't be able to rely on my models. Or what sort of relationship should I have with the project team? Um, I know in a number of countries, uh, I know uh, claims consultants who say this this is happening or they say, well, do we need a separate agreement with our, as between us? So it's, it's almost a problem is about allocation of responsibility and what who's responsible for what is almost a fundamental question, I guess, uh, which is a bit of a wide one, but it differs so much depending on what your BIM process is. 
Yeah, I've, I've often wondered about why people challenge or struggle with the level of ownership or responsibility for stuff because all we're doing is shifting from issuing a PDF or a DWG which would have held, you know, the level of responsibility to start with and it's just an, the it actually just provides more clarity because you're providing modelled elements except for in the cases obviously where you have uh, consultants that are that are doing work in two dimensions and then decide, oh, well, I have to just do this model because I have to get through this goal, you know, and, and achieve this deadline. It's, and copyright is an interesting one as well. Here normally the author uh, always will maintain copyright but provide licence upon payment of fee to to use that content except for in the case where we work for government agencies where government agencies ask for us to sign over those copyright to the to the government agency. So in many cases, you know, the the, the designer still maintains their ownership of their copyright and their and their and, and their moral rights as well. And it's just when you're dealing with the government that that changes. Now that interesting point you do make is in and around the the manufacturer's content and and how that all works and transferring of licensing and all that sort of use, which you would assume by making it publicly available that any copyright information would be held within the object, I'd assume maybe, I don't know. But, you know, we could talk about copyright all day and I don't want to talk about copyright law. Um, that's another can of fish in itself uh, that, that typically gets its own presentation, I think, in many circumstances in and around the architectural profession here in Australia. Now, I guess the, the last question I guess I wanted to ask you in, in regards to this topic is more so for the, the, the main key listeners that I, that I have listening to my podcast and that's in and around the asset owners. And as I talked about earlier, at the moment, number of asset owners aren't actually investing heavily in documenting clearly what their information requirements are. Typically the approach is, is it's very ambiguous when they're engaging uh, their consultants and sometimes they'll resolve them after the, after the consultants have been engaged or even after the contractor's been engaged in a traditional design bid build. So therefore consultants and contractors are engaged with ambiguous terms in terms of, you know, you're going to have to deliver BIM but we don't know what information you have to deliver. You know, we want an LOD 400 model, which once again isn't really true. It doesn't actually explain anything. It doesn't say what elements need to be modelled, what elements aren't modelled, etc. As a, a construction lawyer, making or providing, you know, one sentence or one paragraph of advice to asset owners, it's almost like a closing argument in a, in a, in a law case, what would your, be your recommendations to asset owners about the way in which they approach the procurement of BIM if they were to have it? I think they need to be clear what they want as opposed so why why are we doing BIM? What do we want to get out of it? So use that as a starting point. And once they establish that, it they have to make, I would suggest they have to talk to the lawyers who are writing their contracts say, these are the things I want from my project team. And they have to be in the binding contractual documents. There's no point having it in a list which you talk about, which no one actually has to follow because one day they just may not, uh, which again, I've heard various examples of. 
And it's worth telling the project team as early as possible. So, for example, if you're doing a tender, here's the things I'm thinking about, because otherwise you're not going to get it priced right uh, or programmed right. And the way the ISO 19650 envisages it, and I think the BIM process generally, is that you'll have everything in your EIR. Here's what I want. Now tell me how you're going to make that happen, which will be in the bet. The uh, debate I always have with the BIM community is whether the BEP should be a contractual document. I've always said yes. Uh, the BIM community has generally told me no because it's a living, breathing, progressing document. However, if it's not binding, no one has to comply with it from a legal, purely legal contractual perspective. So do you really know what you're doing and what everyone else is doing? So in an ideal world, certainly they should be looking to tell people as early as possible, but also make it clear in the binding contractual requirements, this is what we expect from you. And equally, how are you going to do it for me? So that halfway through the project, everyone knows what the situation is. So you don't get in a long running, hopefully you don't get in a long running dispute saying, oh, well, I thought it was something different. You just look at a contract, it's clear, and you just carry on. And you, you, have that, uh, you have that discussion early doors, I think. I'm going to side with the BIM community. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an understand, it's an interesting point you make. Um, and the only reason why I'd probably agree with the BIM community, even from my end, and, you know, is as long as the team deliver the project in accordance with the EIR, then the methodology that's used by that team doesn't need to be locked in, in my thoughts, you know, unless 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 the client has a specific way in which they need it done. So the, the client should specify the way in which they want it done if it's critical to the way the information needs to be delivered. <laughs> I think the problem, the problem with that is... Um, as regards, say, if you're a contractor and your subcontractors, subconsultants, or your consultant, you have subconsultants. If the BEP isn't a binding contract down the line, then you envisage I'm going to deliver it a certain way to the client. So I've got I've I've got it all planned out. I tell my supply chain to do it a certain way. If the document which says do it this way because this is how I wanted to deliver it to the con client isn't binding, they don't technically have to follow it. So they could wake up one day and say, actually, I don't want to do it that way anymore. It's just really inconvenient. Oh, I can uh, see that. Also, the ISO does envisage it to be a contractual document. I mean, that's sort of almost a side to in, comply, to in comply with the ISO, but just on a practical perspective. I can I can see it in that sense, but that's where my crazy thought process would be is that the outcome you may achieve might be actually numerous EIR documents that are actually used throughout the different levels of the supply chain because, say, for example, and this is the, the challenging component of a design-bid-build process where we have ISO 19650 in place and... You start off with the EIR that the client provides the design team to comply with. Then the design team create their design 
BEP to comply against the the client's EIR. Then the design team get their project all the way through to tender and then the builder would then need to comply with the client's EIR but then they may also have EIR requirements on their subcontractors so then they can benefit from BIM as well. So the client's BIM use may be – my pure needs as a client is BIM. I need you to maintain a 4D model so that I can – have my superintendent check against program and I would like to have uh, information exchange handover at, com- at, at completion which aligns with Kobe or it could be other FM requirements. But then for the builder they may have exchange information requirements that are greater, far greater than the reach of that client because they may want to have additional information regarding, you know, temporary works, propping, safe movement on site and all those other other additional BIM uses that they may need to incorporate. So that's where the challenges lie because, you know, the designer's models will never contain that information that the contractor may have wanted. Hence why, you know, the conversations I've had with Emma Hooper in and around integrated project insurance contracts, which actually might resolve that issue. But when it comes design, bid, build, it becomes quite a messy chain, you know, and that's where in many ways I feel that exchange information requirements should always be drawn up from the appointing party to the lead appointing party down the chain to all of their suppliers that the of the appointed parties, which, you know, <laughs> could be handled in an EIR with the BEP and that could be one document saying that the, per, the person down the line needs to do this certain step. But I could. This could be another discussion for hours. <laughs> I think you could. I think the important thing, though, from a sort of documentation point of view, is maybe not to get caught up in the sort of what you call the different things. So, in some ways, as long as it's clear as between the parties, I want you. I'm appointing you, whether I'm the whether I'm the client or, or the contractor, the consultant this is what I want you to do. And it's almost, as long as that's clear, it doesn't matter whether you call the document an EIR or a BEP, it's in the contract itself. Uh, It's, so there's sort of the difference between sort of the technical side of BIM, which everyone understands very clearly, an EIR is the difference between an EIR and a BEP, but from the more sort of contractual documentation point of view, it's as long as it's clear who's doing what and when, arguably it doesn't almost matter, as long as it's clear what takes precedence if there's a conflict, it doesn't almost matter where you put it, uh, it's more for the understanding of everyone involved, um, I would say, how you, how, you, how you split it up. And that's where the responsibility matrix is probably more important in terms yeah. of what, what, who has, who's responsible for what elements and what elements need to be delivered at what level of detail and what level of information at each handover or each, you know, um, each gate. This has been a lot longer discussion, I thought, and I probably drove it further than I should have. This is a really important topic, I think, for uh, the, the asset owners out there and also for the construction lawyers that are looking to provide advice for their their clients in dra- drafting contracts, which I think will help them moving forward. But, May, I must thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Now, I have one final question. It's one that I've been asking all of my guests. What does BIM mean to you? I would say BIM to me means a more collaborative way of working 
using 3D modeling and interconnected data as compared to, say, the traditional non-BIM way of working. I like your sophisticated answer there. So thanks again, May, for your time. Now, for more information on what we discussed today, please head to our website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Digital transition.